Well, for the fifth week in a row, we're in 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to start with verses 1 through 4, um, which normally means I would say open your Bibles, but I don't want you to open your Bible. I'd like for you to get another book. I'd like for you to reach in the back of your pew and find a hymn book. Find a hymn book. And if you will thumb through the pages of that hymn book, you will find that diagram that we drew last week, a couple of them, so you'll share them across your pews, uh, pull out those and share those. We're going to do a little bit of reviewing before we uh, get to, and you'll be glad to hear this, some new verses, some uh, move forward into the uh, next, up to verses 11. But before we do that, we want to once again walk through these important uh, words here at the beginning of Second Peter. I think they're important for us personally. I think they speak to... Uh, I think the great need of the church, um, we talk about our mission statement. We say, worship the Lord, disciple the saved, serve one another, reach the lost. All those are important. They're all woven together. But certainly in these days, for what, uh, where we'll be at, there's the need for discipleship, for growing a deep people in Christ is important. And this passage certainly speaks to that in a powerful, important way. And uh, last week we drew, you actually drew that diagram that you see there where I took these four verses in a rather mechanical way, tried to show the relationship between these layers and layers of stuff. We're going to walk through that again. But before we do that, we are going to read the scripture. Let's start with those first four verses. So stand with me as once again we read Second Peter chapter 1. The words will be on the screen, or now you may open your Bible, but the words, scripture is also there on that piece of paper. We've been trying to memorize this. I hope you've been working at that to get these things. I think to understand this passage and to use it, you almost have to memorize it. There's just so many different layers of things. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things, you know this one, pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called you to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Father, thank you for this precious word. May it, may it be fleshed out in us, in our church. May it be brought to bear on all the, the hurt and bleeding places that we bring in this place today. Those things that we share and ask others to pray for us about. And those things that are deep and personal and often regretful that we don't share with anyone. But we know we need you to bring us forward and to make progress in this business of becoming like you. We pray that as we hear your word this morning, as those words we've already sung reverberate through our minds, that your spirit, your word would, would be real to us, that there would be no going through the motions, and that you'd prepare us for in a few moments to take this meal, the Lord's Supper, that is so significant and so important to our lives together. Do a work in us now to fit us for that and then for the life that needs to happen as we leave this place this morning. And Father, we pray for those who have not entered into this scripture because 
that missed the very beginning of it, and they don't yet know you. They don't have a walk with you. They don't have a life in you. They, they need to come to faith in Jesus this morning, and we pray that for them and that you would use all that we're doing together for that purpose as well. May you be glorified in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. May be seated. I've discovered down at uh, our Pioneer campus, I've really enjoyed teaching and preaching with, where I can actually interact with the screen. I intend to do that here. was planning to do it this morning for a lot of reasons. I'm not going to do that this morning. That means you're going to have to help in some other way, so get ready. Some of you are going to help me this morning since I'm not ready to do that. Um, I want us to walk through what we did last week where we took all these many different terms and phrases. I don't know if I can get back there, if I can see this or not. Um, where we, we, we took sort of mechanical way of first looking at so we could sort of get them in our mind of what he's talking about in these four, four important verses. And I want to do that again with you this morning. Everything starts, remember, in verse 1 where he speaks of himself, of, but then he speaks directly to uh, the Christians, the, the believers that he's talking to, and he says, uh, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. A remarkable saying. Here's Peter, the head of the church. Peter, who has walked on water, was known the Lord Jesus Christ through his whole earthly ministry, who was there uh, at his resurrection, who's there at Pentecost, who's been so powerfully used. And yet he says to these many of them brand new Christians in Turkey, many of them Gentiles, had none of the Old Testament background he had, none of that. But he says, you now have, a, in your faith, you've heard about Christ, you've, you've come to him, and you now have a faith of equal standing, of equal value to what, what I have, what we have, we who follow him. This is, this is the great wonder. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian or how gifted you are or what ranks you may have imagined. You've re- the, the big deal of your life will always be that you've come to faith in Jesus Christ and by the mercy and grace of God, you've been declared righteous. That's Everything else is so piddly that that's the stuff that everything hinges on. And so as we've, we've pictured this, we, with the, everything starts with faith and then righteousness. So if you don't get this, it's small, but if you miss this, none of this matters. All this, everything else, this is, this is the foundation. This is that moment where God and his work and his grace brought you to a place, and in a moment of faith, you're born again, and forensically, God has declared you not only your sins are forgiven, but all the righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to you. When God deals with you, he deals with you as his holy, perfect son. Even though you're not yet there, by the blood of Christ, that's all your gift to you instantly in a moment. Nothing you can do to earn it. So I need someone to come take this. I'm going to hand these out. So somebody, I need a volunteer quickly. Come up here. Bob, you can come. All right. There's going to be more of these. I'm not going to throw this. All right. You go back and sit down. No, no, no. You don't get to come up yet. Just, uh... All right. Then he says, from that... We move into, um, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's put grace and peace here. These are the two great words that describe the life we have in Christ. He immediately begins to say what you received in Christ, his righteousness. Now there's more, but this is not, you don't get all this instantly. This has to be multiplied. It has to grow. And so he's, I'm praying that grace and peace, the, the grace of God that saves you, but also the, the energy of God's life that flows through your life and the shalom of God, the, the blessings of God, of his peace, that they become greater and greater and greater. And that's the process that you'll be in all the way through to heaven. So Grace and peace come next. And they're sort of the end result. That's why I put them at the other end. This is another way of saying this is what he's trying to produce in us. I need somebody to come and take grace and peace. Come up here and take grace and peace. Take care of them. 
All this stuff is fragile, believe me. Then he says, then he says, he says, you get that to the knowledge of God. We'll come back to that because he repeats that. Then he says uh, that through his divine power, by his divine power, whose divine power? Jesus' divine power. In fact, let's just notice this about this whole passage. Let's just walk through before I get that. Faith, when we talk about having faith, who do we have faith in? In Jesus Christ. This whole passage is centered in a person. I put it in mechanical terms, but this is personal stuff. This is personal between you and the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything we talk about here is vitally connected to that. There's not a more Christ-centered, Jesus-centered passage of Scripture in the Bible than this one. So when you go back to, to verse 1, you see he talks about Simon Peter. Who is? He's a servant apostle of Jesus Christ. You see, he says we have a safe and an equal standing because we have a righteousness between God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He says you, you come to the knowledge of, in verse 2, of God and Jesus our Lord. You go to verse 3 and he talks about we receive his divine power. Whose divine power? Jesus' divine power. He's granted us everything and we can't get that everything through the knowledge of him. Who's him? It's Jesus. He's called us to his own glory. Whose glory? The glory and the excellence of Jesus. Verse 4, he says, He has granted to us His precious... Whose precious promises? The promises of Jesus Christ. So, so, so as we try to break this down, we try to analyze it, just remember this all comes back to your life, to your relationship, to your knowledge, to your experience, to your love, to your devotion, to the growing awareness of Jesus Christ. Um, I... Uh, I think it's important for us to always say out loud that all the Bible really thumbs back to Jesus. Now, you don't get the name Jesus Christ. You don't get it. It comes in its fullness in the New Testament. But the whole story, starting with Genesis 1-1, is about Jesus. I saw, Matt, that you put uh, a notice on Facebook. I, I think you must have come to the same, probably the same route I did. There's a wonderful series of videos uh, made by some very creative people that obviously love the Lord and uh, in a very creative way they've uh, taken many of the books of the Old Testament they're going to try to do them all and in a very creative way uh, taking the truth that's there in the Old Testament but you don't if all you had was that you wouldn't see it but if you take the whole Bible as a whole and you, you, you look backwards at it through the lens of the, the finished work of Christ uh, it becomes very clear and I love the way they start the, the story of Genesis I'm going to show you just one minute of this 11 minute overview of Genesis I'm hoping that you might might find it and look at it yourself I think it would be helpful can we play that video maybe maybe not no it's a really good video you ought to watch it sometime I, uh, <laughs> this technology stuff doesn't always work so good so uh, uh, that's okay let me, just, let me just point, make this point. We believe in progressive revelation. That is, God didn't... We believe that God has worked in history in the stories of real human beings and through it, all the ages from creation on, He's been revealing Himself. And so we talk about progressive revelation. We look at the Old Testament. There's things the Old Testament doesn't have that we have in more complete form in the New Testament. But, but hear me, when we say progressive revelation, we don't mean we get to the New Testament and we discover all the stuff about Jesus. And so we look back at the Old Testament and say, well, a bunch of that was wrong, but now it's corrected in this progressive revelation. That, that this stuff, that's not what we find. It's not wrong. In fact, all the truth that we see, fullness in Jesus, it was all there. We just couldn't see it and understand it. But in Jesus, we see 
We don't throw anything away. It's all there, but now we understand it. We see it. We see its purposes. And that's the reason I want to show you that video, because he, he talks about how Genesis 1-1, Jesus, the Word, we find out from John 1, that Word, and God said, and God said, was Jesus. The Jesus who created the earth, who created our breath, who created the dirt for which the, the, the air that he would himself come and have to breathe when he became flesh. He created the trees, including one of the trees that one day he would die on. He, the Creator did all of that, knowing his whole plan. That's the point. That's the point. So that we, we have that life in Christ. Um, so, above everything else I want to say, don't, all the stuff we've been talking about, my big concern is we not get caught up in it to the degree that we miss Jesus. I love a testimony I read this week. It's uh, in a book called Lost and Found, and, and Sam Allaberry writes these words. He says, talks about when he came to know Christ. He was he's like some of you. He grew up in church. He heard the Bible stories, all stained glass windows. I heard all that stuff, but he, he says there came a point. I was about 18, he says, and I read the words. I'd heard them a hundred times. Christ died for me. And then he says, it hit me. Not just that Jesus had died for humanity in some generalized vague way, but that Jesus had died for me. And while intellectually he knew it, he didn't know it. He says it was as if I was the only sinner on the planet. He had laid down that perfect, provocative, humble life for me. He had risen again as a public vindication and completion of his saving death. If I knew anything, I knew that this was someone I could build my future upon. I wanted him in my life. I had come to know him. And then he says this, but there's this thing. Given who he is, you can't have some of him. Some of Jesus is really no Jesus at all. He says he doesn't play that game. He won't be an ingredient in your perfect life. He intends to be no less than your perfect life. If we try to combine an amount of Jesus with all the other stuff that we think is so essential to us, we end up with this toxic, explosive mess. It's an unstable compound. He goes on to tell his testimony. He says, it's amazing to me that Jesus, the creator of the heavens and the earth of the cosmos, so humbled to know me, to know my name, to, to, to count the hairs on my head, to come to me and to find me. And yet, let's be clear about it. He does not come... While he is humble to do that to me, he does not come on my terms. He comes on his terms. If I was to have him at all, I have to be his follower, his disciple. He's not my co-pilot. He's not my co-leader. He says, yes, that was that. I gave my life to Christ when I saw that, and he became born again. But then he said, here's this other thing. Receiving Christ is not the end of the matter of who will lead whom. It turns out that that day that I made that decision to follow him, that that day was just one of many that have to be reacted over and over again. Not that I have to become a Christian over and over again. I'm forever a Christian, but in the sense that I have to reappropriate what it means to belong to Jesus. You see, that part of me that wants to take some of Jesus and combine it with my own agenda, that still has to be dealt with all the time. That doesn't disappear overnight. In fact, it tends to, you go to bed overnight and you wake up the next morning, you kind of want to take charge again. The Apostle Paul said it like this in Colossians 2. He said, therefore, as you receive Christ, that day you became a Christian, walk in him, rooted, built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So the question above all questions for everyone this morning is, above all else, do you know by faith Jesus Christ? And then if you have... 
that he's already begun, for some of you who's been a long time in the process, of all this other stuff. He's brought grace and peace that's meant to be multiplying in your life. And to that, he says, for all this that he needs to do, is not what we've got to accomplish. He's going to do it by his divine power. Divine power. I have special effects this morning. I didn't have last week. You're going to be so amazed. Let's get ready. Hold on. I could plug things in. I could do it. Ah, there you go. Divine power. Now, here's the point. The divine power, he walks, works through all these things to produce a divine nature in us. To produce grace and peace that's also part of this. That's the end result. And the point is to understand some of it's how he does this. Now, he, he moves on from there and he talks about this divine power that is his work in us, his accomplishment in us. So that the, the whole of Christian life is not try harder, do better, be better, do more. You've got to get it done. It's divine power. And by the way, that divine power changes how you relate to other people. It means that that uncle of yours that you've given up on, those, that kid you've given up on, that fellow church member that you're sure is never going to make any progress, there's divine power working there that can do things you don't think can happen. Don't you pigeonhole a brother and sister in Christ and say, well, I know what they're not, God's not done with them either, just like he's not done with you. So that, that, changes, that changes everything. But the scope of this is for all things for life and godliness. All things. We've talked a lot about that, the generosity of God. All things that God gives us. I need somebody to take the all things. Who's going to do that? Somebody come up here. Get my all things thing. Just hold it for me. I'm on. Sit there. Stay right there. There'll be more, Joel. Just stay right there. Your next stuff. Then he says that all things come to us through the knowledge of him. That's actually the second time he said it. He said grace and peace come through the knowledge of him. That, that this river of, of the reservoir of God's power is going to flow through the knowledge of God. At the heart of it, this is personal, relational knowledge. It's more than that. There's truth we've got to get hold of, but we, we look at that truth in the Scripture. We study the Bible not just to get facts and data points. We do it to out of that to hear and meet Christ and to see Him for who He is. So uh, the knowledge of Him. Who wants to take the knowledge of Him and... Uh, This is the heavy one. Joel, you do need this one. Somebody, here we go. This knowledge of him, he says, has to do with his uh, very own glory and excellence. We'll just leave this one sitting right here. Um, Christ's glory, his excellence, that's transforming us into that same image. And then through that, he has granted to us these precious and great promises. We talked a lot last week about how important that is particularly in dealing with getting free, that the meeting God, seeing his word, seeing a precious promise is how we battle the sinful desires and see them for what they are and see that we have something better. Somebody hold uh, great precious promises. Thank you. All of that leads to uh, the ability then out of these precious promises um, having his divine nature. I'm leaving divine nature sitting up there too. That's the end result. I, I hinted last week that this divine nature is a little squirrely. <laughs> uh, the, Peter has used a phrase here. It was, it was misunderstood by the Greeks in his day. It's certainly misunderstood in our day. Uh, 
This idea of being absorbed into, into God, becoming one with God, becoming like God. We have cultists in this country who have this vision that, that even our life in Christ is meant to make us a God one day or to enter into the God. That's not what this is about. It's clearly not what that's about. Um, it's really much more of the what Paul talks about that we become in Christ. Uh, it's I don't become Christ. I don't become God. Uh, I'm a child of God, but I'm not like the Son of God. I don't eternally become God. That, quite honestly, if one of you came to me this week and said, uh, Pastor, I've been having a wonderful time in the Word and in prayer, and oh, it's just been amazing what God to and I've been divine, I, I've been absorbed into the divine nature. I go, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> no, let's get, in. we're not Shirley MacLaine, okay, for those of you who know who she is. That's, I don't want to be sucked into her nature. I, I don't want anything to do with that. Uh, this is, this is not that. It is becoming like Christ. That divine nature that is in him. It, I tell you what it is. It's, it's uh, Aiden getting baptized last week. It's when you were baptized. You, you get baptized. We, to pay everyone, you, you make a statement. You, you've been born again. He doesn't make anything happen, but it's a testimony of what happened. It's a testimony of what you believe. That you believe Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on a cross for your sins, and that when he died, he was buried. And so you, you make that declaration. As your Lord under the water, you are buried in baptism. But then, of course, we don't leave you there. You come up. It's a testimony that he is raised, that he is a living Savior. He lives in you. But Paul says in Romans 6, it's not just that. It's also a testimony of what you believe that by faith in him, your life has been joined with his. His life has become your life. And so in a very real sense, when you come to Christ, when it's not that just Jesus has died, but your old life of sin is died, is being put to death. And you've been raised to a new person. You have a new life in Jesus Christ. How does Paul say it in Romans 6? He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's what I think Peter's talking about, this divine nature. The word participate in is the word koinonia. You know that word. It's that we have a fellowship with, uh, with, with God so that, that all the things we're going to talk about, of course that thing begins to bear out upon us. And then, of course, the one other thing we mentioned um, is this positive thing of the divine nature of the grace and peace in Christ, but there's also victory over the negative things, and that's that corruption. I guess somebody come take the corruption box for me. Um, we'll get the corruption box. Remember we talked about the dead fish and the dead rat and the maggots. Come on, come on, come, come, come take the Steve, come up here and get the... Uh... And I still have the dead fish and I still have the rat. Here, that's my friend Terry. He's a deacon. He can handle it. So uh, take that. Good to see you guys this morning. So... Welcome. I gave you my dead fish and my dead rat. They're really putrid. Uh, this really is, of course, you recognize this, this dealing with the corruption, this sinful desire. Uh, it doesn't say the world God has made or the desires even that we have as human beings are bad, but they get all twisted. They get out of proportion. They, we, want, we, we take them and we want to use them in the wrong way, at the wrong place, at the wrong time, in the wrong, wrong degree, and... And they just mess everything up. They ruin everything. And, and they're very powerful. And in some ways, um, 
The whole work of Christ is to help us deal with these things and to, to win that victory and to, to know that in Christ the root has been severed. I don't have to live by that anymore and that I, I want to be free from it. Romans 6 says, Therefore we do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. And the way we do this, it's the same thing Peter says. He says in Romans 8, 5, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. We quoted the verse last week, delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart and those desires will be able to be so, they will overwhelm these desires that are going to ruin everything. So he says we've been given an escape from that. Just like we mentioned last week when God said to Lot, escape for your life, don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley, escape to the hills lest you be swept away. In Christ we have escaped. So, so there come, you, you try to do business and there's ways to cut corners. There's a way to lie and be deceitful and you'll have more money and you're tempted because you want to make more money. And then you know the promises of Christ that he will provide, that you'll trust him and walk with him. He will provide and give you everything that you need. You, you have a spouse, you have a wife, a husband, and you want to give up and throw up your hands and be done with it and walk away and... Then you remember the, the whole picture of what marriage is about and how the, all the power of Christ is there so you, you can win those battles. You want to boast and brag and strut around and be proudful and, and look down on other people. And then you remember that you think that will make you happier, but Christ shows that the real happiness, the people who really end up on top of those are willing to be last or humble like he is. You can win this battle because of the resources that Christ has given us. By the way, this whole business of corruption, this is important for parents and for grandparents and all of us in our church are working with children. Of course, we want to do everything we can we to protect our children from the corrupting things that are going on in this world. And as never before, the temptations, the allurements, the, the confusion, the lies that are being woven into everything that's coming at your kids is deep and profound and you ought to be thinking through every bit of that, parents. But hear me. The biggest corruption you have to worry about and you have to pray for that they'll overcome. It's not what's out there. It's first of all what's in here. It's the same battle you face. And so as we're praying for them, we, we certainly don't want to do anything to throw the fire, the flames, the fire, all that. but we, we recognize that God's got to do something in their heart. Without anything in the world, that there's still enough that would, would mess them up and ruin their life. So the Christian life is a day-to-day fight of sinful desires with precious promises, the desires that come from your heart and the promises that come from God. So those desires are tamed by the Word of God. It's just to believe that, you will, that, that those promises will give you something better than your sinful desires who would lie to you. So, here we are. All these things, you got them? All right, you guys that got one, come put them back, put them back in the right order. Everybody come up here, let's see if they can get it. Let's see how we can make it all work. Bring it back up here, put them in the back in the right order. Great job. This is perfect. All right?
So faith starts it all, gives us righteousness, gives God's divine power. That divine power includes all things. Uh, out of that, that comes to a knowledge of him. That knowledge is about his glory and excellence, and it produces great promises, precious and wonderful, and that end results in having and participating in his divine nature, which I've already mentioned, that grace and peace is multiplying our life, and it means we can escape from, well, except for Terry, he's got to take the fish home, but... Uh, you escape from the corrupting power of sin that ruins and is ruined and has ruined every good thing in your life to the degree that you've let it. All right. I promise not to go through that again on Sunday morning with you probably just like that, but we're going to move ahead. We're going to come to verses at least 5 through 7. Now, let me tell you something about verses 5 through 7. It's shocking. It's not what we would expect. It's the last thing in the world that I would think in light of everything he's just said that he would say that to us now, but it's exactly what he does. So, Stand with me as we read verses 5 through 7. For this very reason, everything he's just said, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, with love. Thank you. Be seated. Don't you find that surprising? He just said over and over, you see, we've tried to make the point. He said, everything you need is provided for you in Christ. Everything you need for this victory is provided for you in Christ. And now we get to verse 5 and he says, in light of that, you need to do everything you possibly can to add to what Christ has already done. How do you add to everything? Can you say the word paradox with me? Paradox? You have everything in Christ. That's what verses 3 and 4 is all about. Now he says, add to it. We'll talk about this all the way through verse 11. There is always this paradox of being in Christ. Everything is provided. It is from him. And yet, everything of our strength is to follow as we experience this. He says, for this very reason. What reason? Because I've given everything you need in Christ. Now make every effort to fulfill it. Because you have everything that is yours in Christ. Now do this. You see, if if I were writing this, I think I would come to verse 5 and I'd say, now Peter, you made a mistake at verse 5. What you're supposed to say in light of what you just said there is, now you simply say to them, "Let's, uh, let's go and let God just Relax, lay back, and let God do it. That's what it seems like he would say. But that's not what he says. It's just the opposite. You see this paradox all the way through the Scriptures. It's encapsulated perfectly, of course, in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, where he says, work out your own salvation. You may have been saved by grace through faith, but now work out your... There is work to be done. It calls for the best of you have. Do it with fear and trembling with all you got. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You give it all you've got, and as you give it all you've got, just know he's doing that. He's working in you. He makes that possible for you to even do that. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. All right? Those same, eight, those same volunteers, you were so gracious and good to do that. I need all eight of you to come back on the platform, please. Quick, quick, quick. You thought you were done. Huh? Well, 
We'll just start down here at uh, this end. Person on the very, you'll be on the end, faith. And then um, we need uh, virtue. I should have had these in the word. At one point I did, but so virtue. Hold those so people can see it. And then uh, knowledge. And then uh, I'm missing, I, got, I need a couple more people up here. I can just tell you right now. Um, here we come. Step out of the room, see what happens. So, uh, self-control, steadfastness, um, godliness. I need two more people. Two more people. Two more people. Don't make me come get you. Come on, come on, Bill. You do good. Here we go. We got two right here. All right. You'll be brotherly affection. You get to be love. All right. Here we are. So these are the qualities that he talks about. Now, here's the problem right away. We're trying to memorize this scripture, right? We've got a long list. How are we going to memorize that? Well, you know, I remember when I was taking piano 100,000 years ago, I learned they had little things, you know, little... Well, first of all, you could try to make a word from it. Um, the, the word would be F-V-K-S-S-G-B-L. No, it doesn't work. So you can take each letter and try to make a funny sentence. You know, every boy, every good boy does good or something. I'm not sure I remember. But that's how you... So let, let's make a... Let's make a, I think there's an obvious sentence. If we took the first letter of all these words, F-V-K-S-S-G-B-L. Obvious sentence. I know you all see it. The, the F-Y-K is four very klutzy. Four very klutzy. And then the S-S-G, obviously, submarine sailor guys. And the BL, you know what the BL is, of course. Four, four very klutzy submarine sailor guys buying lifesavers. Can you get that picture in your mind? Does that help? Some of you that helps. A bunch of us, I don't think that helps much. But uh, I want you to try to get this list in your mind. I think you want to, we want to work on it. Do whatever means you want to do. All right, let's do this. Let's take a moment and very briefly define these words. That's about all we're going to get done this morning. But let's define these words. And, and to keep you engaged, uh, I'm going to give you a definition, and you tell me which of these words we're talking about here, okay? Um, I'm going to move over. Just, I'm trying to, y'all move up a little bit closer because I'm, not, I'm hiding it. So get where everybody can, can cross the room and see it. All right, let me give you a, a, a definition, and then you tell me what word it is, all right? Let's start with this one. Spiritual comprehension of the truth of God's word. Spiritual comprehension of the truth of God's Word. What do you think that defines? Knowledge. Knowledge. Very, very important. All right. How about this one? Delight in, respect for, and goodwill to, to every genuine Christian. You delight in, you respect, you have goodwill towards every genuine Christian. Which is it? Brotherly affection down here. All right. Um, what God regards as right, pleasing, commendable, moral excellence. Virtue down here. Virtue is a very important one. Let me say a word about that. This 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 was a big word in Greek culture, uh, and and here I think we would understand it's the God-given ability to perform heroic, Christ-like deeds to live with excellence in Christ. It's what Paul says: "I press on to the mark of the prize of the high calling of Christ Jesus." We think of people out of our church who have gone to the mission field. So some of your kids have served in hard, dangerous, difficult places. That's courage, bravery. That, that is virtue that we see in a powerful way. But it's not limited to just those big things. It's, it's lived out a thousand ways every day. It's lived out every day by, by a wife who continues to give honor and put her husband on a pedestal of her heart and 
and try to meet his deepest needs, even though he is anything but the kind of husband he ought to be. It's the husband who, who chooses simply because he's a follower of Christ and he's made a commitment to him to keep loving his wife like Christ has loved him, even though she does anything but, but be the kind of wife that she ought to be, doesn't meet any of his needs, but he keeps loving her. That's, that is virtue. That is courageous. That is that being prompted by the Spirit to go to people, to give things away, to, to speak to people about the gospel that you don't feel like, but you know Christ has called you. It's, it's, it's that, kind of, that kind of thing. Now, here's the, this is another thing that's tricky about this virtue. You see, what we call virtue and what in this culture was generally called virtue has changed in the last 20 years. Have you noticed? We, we, there's a lot of talk about this at the Southern Baptist Convention I just came, but it's, it applies to Christians, evangelical Christians across the board. If you hold to biblical Christianity, we are seen by the broader culture we live in as obstacles, as impediments, as regressive to our society. Convictional, conservative Christians are facing a predicament where the world looks at us and we're not experienced. Many older ones of us, we're not used to this, but we're looked down on as the people who are the problem. We're the ones that don't have virtue, and they do. When they look at those who hold biblical truth, stand for them, seek to be salt and light, they say, we're on the wrong side of history. We're on the wrong side of morality. We're on the wrong side of all the revolutions that are about to make the world this glorious thing. So it's going to take real virtue to be a godly, virtuous person because it's not going to be appreciated and recognized as such very often, and yet the calling is no less. All right, virtue. All right, having your heart and life under the restraint and influence of God's Word and Spirit. What's that one? Having your life under the restraint and influence of God's Word and Spirit. Self-control. That's a tricky one, too. Because when Christians talk about self-control, we don't mean living under the control of yourself. I know the word, but when Christians say self-control, it means having your heart and life under the control of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. It's really being spirit-controlled and word-controlled, not self-controlled. We can't trust our own hearts. All right, how about this one? Gospel devotion to and reverence for God. It's the behavior that's expected of Christians who have come to know the God of Scripture. What's that one? It's godliness. Godliness. That's what he's already said, remember, that uh, everything we need for life and godliness has been provided. Well, now that it's been provided, we're supposed to live that out. We have the power available to to become people who please God by what we do. All right, how about this one? Sticking to the Christian faith and a godly lifestyle as long as you live. Steadfastness. Some translations would say endurance. It's the opposite of the parable of the soils. Remember the guy, he says to the heart that the the, the gospel's sown into it, the person gladly receives it. Oh, they're so excited. You think revival's broken out. Oh, I've been saved. And then the first time trouble comes along, things get a little hot, they walk away. They were never really saved. And the mark of a true Christian, there'll be ups and downs, there'll be valleys, there'll be difficulties. But they persevere. There's a steadfastness. And then goodwill to respect and delight in God and goodwill and respect for all people, love. That word is agape. I remember being taught as a boy about agape in Philadelphia and Eros, whose three broad ideas of, of, of sexual love, of, of Philadelphia, that, that word for brotherly love and the scripts of our life together. And then agape, that unique God kind of love 
The way that Jesus has loved us, that, that not because of anything we find pleasing or helpful or, or beneficial, but he loves in spite. And now we are to learn to love even our enemies, even those who would hate us, even those who think we're anything but virtuous because we love Christ. Now, the truth is, those three words, if you, if you want to get down to it, are not quite as distinct. They're, they're all particularly brotherly love, the, feel, the, the love of one another and, and the gospel. They all flow in one another, but there is uniqueness, certainly, to the kind of love we have one another. This kind of love is always at all the lists in the Bible where it talks about things like this. Love, this one always seems to come out on top. Colossians 3.14 lists some, and it says, and Above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Thank you, guys. You can take those with you and keep them forever. I hope to find them in your home, decorating it someplace when I come by. So, um. Now look at verse 8 very quickly. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If these qualities are yours and increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very, very important that we uh, see all these things, all these graces, all these qualities in us. And I think what he would say to us this morning is that it's expected that these are already there. Maybe at different places, different levels, but all of them are to be there. And quite frankly, if there's one of them that's not there at all, then you're probably one of those following the category of someone who's never really saved. Let me, I want to just illustrate just one of those, and we'll talk maybe more about this next week, because this, this is a big issue, the assurance of salvation, knowing that you know that you know that you're a Christian, and how this works into this. And maybe knowing that you know that you know that you're not a Christian. For instance, let's talk about a, a heretic. A heretic is someone who... Uh, who has perhaps it looks like all the graces. I really don't think they have any of them. But um, they, they're, it's very obvious. It stands out that they, they're missing spiritual comprehension of the Word of God. There's a, there's a place of knowledge that they don't get. So rather than holding to the truth of the gospel, they deny it. They profess to know God, but they, they deny the Christian faith. First John talks a lot about this. First John for one, beloved, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. All kinds of false things being put out there. Now, this the very the very thing that I'm saying right now that there's that this belief really matters. That how a person thinks and through these through certain important matters that how you what you believe is absolute. That is heresy to the culture I live in. Because we live in a culture that says, well, whatever goes, whatever you feel like, whatever you happen to think, whatever uh, you have your ideas, I have my ideas. And even as a Christian, you know, Christianity is always in flux. It's always evolving. There's new things here, new things there. Um, There's no objective truth. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. The Bible warns us that there are are all kinds of things Christians are going to disagree about. It's not that even aren't even important, but there's there are some non-negotiable truths that just you miss this, you don't get this right. You're not of the faith. You're headed for hell. I don't know how to put it more bluntly than that. That's just the truth. John says in that passage in John, he says, By this we know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every person, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he is in the world. You have the Holy Spirit. He will help you discern truth. 
When you get led into error, there's something that will go off like an alarm in your heart and your mind on these, on these things that you will begin to know. He says, they are from the world, these lies. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. They're very popular. People grab hold of them. Oh, you have your truth. I have my truth. Everybody can have the truth. It doesn't matter. And, and that's dogma now. But it's a lie. We are from God, he says in verse 6. Whoever knows God listens to us. That's John the Apostle. Listens to the Apostles. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So you go to the Scriptures. You go to the Bible. You trust the Holy Spirit, and He will make these things clear to you. We're talking about, the, if those of you who have been membership matters, you know Al Mohler's uh, picture of triage. There are, there are heart attack issues, there are broken arm tri- things, and there are splinter stuff. This is the broken, this is the, the heart attack stuff. You don't get this right. You're, you're in error here, and, and everything's lost. And he clues here these false doctrines about Jesus. Often they're about the way we understand Jesus. Deny that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. Denying the incarnation that God became flesh and walked in real history in real time and he's a real person. That God himself became human to reveal himself to us and to save us. That he was born of a virgin. That he lived a perfect life. That he died on a cross. That he was bodily put in the grave. And then three days later he was raised from that grave. And that he is bodily, literally, personally coming again. You deny that stuff and you deny what is essential to the faith. You're falling into the spirit of it. There, there's, a, there's a place of knowledge that puts you in great, great danger. 1 John 2.23 says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. It matters what you believe about these things. People say, oh no, that stuff, as long as you like Jesus, it's it's what you do, you know, it's, it's how you live. It doesn't matter what you really believe. My friends, Christianity hinges on some truths that ultimately do come out in how we live. The virgin birth matters. The resurrection matters. That God is the creator of this heaven and this earth. It matters to him. It matters what people believe. Second John 1, 9, Everyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. I know what that sounds like. To this culture, this is, this is hyper-dogmatic. This is arrogant. This is medieval. People who have Christ, among the places and the qualities that will grow and overcome, is a growing knowledge, a relational but also an intellectual knowledge of the truths of God. If these qualities are yours and increasing, They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted, he's blind, he's forgotten that he's been cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Here is in many places the Scripture says to people who are Christians, now examine yourself, look at your life, and if God's power is at work in you, you're not going to be at perfection. You're not, and you may not be, you may compare to someone else. You may seem far behind, but you know there's been growth there. That's a sign that confirms with you that, that you've got the real deal in Jesus Christ. And we ought to examine ourselves that way. Which brings us to how we finish this morning to the Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper is a reason to celebrate, it's a reason to be very solemn. 
Tim Chalice has uh, written some beautiful truths about the Lord's Supper. He says, in the Lord's Supper, we remember the suffering and death of the innocent Son of God, and we confess that it was our sin that made it necessary. That's why he had to die on that cross. But in the Lord's Supper, we rejoice that God has made a way for us to be saved, and we proclaim with confidence that Christ is alive and will come again. There's both sorrow and joy, grief and triumph. And there's one little simple meal that we're rehearsing the whole gospel with all of its shame, of which we are part of, and with all of its glory. Then he goes on to say something else. He says, I wonder if you've ever considered that the Lord's Supper is unique in all the elements of corporate worship and that it involves a visible separation between those who are not Christians and those who are. When you think about what we come together and do on Sunday morning, when we worship together, when we stand and sing, we don't say, no, only Christians stand and sing. If you're not a Christian yet, don't stand. We don't do that, do we? When we pray, we don't say, all right, we're only going to pray for Christians and only Christians. No, we pray for everybody and for all their needs. And I can tell you when I'm preaching, I, I certainly try to preach to fellow believers, but I'm also preaching and pleading and hoping these words will hit the heart who's never come to faith in Christ. But when you come to the Lord's Supper, it's important that we say we welcome some to take it, and others we have to ask you to exclude yourself. You're fine to be in the room with us, but you shouldn't take this meal. First of all, it won't make any sense to you, but worse than that, the Bible says if you take it and you're not a disciple of Christ, you're not his, you're drinking and eating judgment on yourself. This is serious business. And so Paul says as you take this meal, as we're getting ready to distribute it, we ought to spend these moments examining ourselves. Are there the marks that I really am him? Am I sure of my confession of him? We need that assurance. We'll talk more about how to be stronger and grow in that, but, but it's a time now to make, am I really a follower of Christ? That's settled, clear in my heart. And I'm examining how I'm doing in my walk with him. Look at your own soul. Look at your walk. See what he would say to you as we prepare to take at this meal. Once we know we're his and you're sure of it, and you should eat and drink together with us. So deacons, we're going to serve us this morning. Those men are going to help us. If you'd come and serve this meal as we spend some time just before the Lord, and then we'll take it together and be dismissed. There has to be a visible separation. That Some of us can take this and some of us can't. It grieves us. At the service I just came from at other campus, there was a man there that I've had some contact with. And to explain all this, he couldn't take the Lord's Supper this morning. He does. He desperately needs Jesus. He needs to follow Christ. He's not there yet. I won't name his name, but it's an older gentleman. Pray for him. Pray for him. He'll come across that line real soon. We'll see him in baptism and we'll see him sharing this. As we take this Lord's Supper this morning, we experience the emotions of grief. We take this, this is the shed blood and broken body of Jesus because of my sin and your sin. And yet, we also do it with thanksgiving because we are those who can take it. We are those who have Christ. We have been forgiven and we have Him. And so we, we celebrate. We grieve and we celebrate in Christ as we 
Remember what he did for us in his broken body and in his shed blood. We take it in remembrance of him. Father, thank you for your presence with us this morning. Thank you that as we've taken this meal into our bodies, we've taken you into our life because you've given us life. Help us to live like it. Amen.